This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 8 of Office Hours, and we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. In confessional Protestant circles, we use some shorthand Latin phrases that we might not all understand, even though we use them frequently. Sola gratia is one of those. These expressions go back to the very beginning of the Reformation, so they are ancient. Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt, before he radicalized, used the expression sola gratia repeatedly in 1519. Martin Bucer used it in the 1530s in his commentary on the Gospels and again in the 1540s. Peter Martyr Vermeule used it in the 50s and as did Caspar Olivianus in the 1570s. Calvin used the notion and the phrase in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. John Fesco is academic dean and professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of a number of books, including The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. This title is found with other faculty titles at the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's great to be with you. So, what do we mean by this Latin phrase, sola gratia? What is grace, or what, what does this mean? You know, that's a great question. I think that, as you said at the intro, that there's so many of these phrases that we use or perhaps have heard, but maybe we haven't given as much thought to them as we should. I think scripturally, we could say that perhaps one of the points that it comes from is Paul's letter to Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 8 and following, when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. And so here he talks about salvation being by grace. But as we can all imagine, grace may be one of the most used statements or phrases or terms in the church, but it's perhaps one of the most variously defined in that it's defined in many different ways. But I think scripturally, we could say very basically that God's grace is his favor. And it's basically the favor ultimately that he shows chiefly in Christ in the redemption of fallen sinners. But then we could say secondarily in a much broader category that grace is his undeserved mercy that he shows perhaps to the creation more broadly, but for the sake of his saving grace. Grace occurs frequently in Scripture, and as you say, it's one of these words that we use. It's in the Pauline greetings, Mm -hmm. grace to you and peace from God our Father. So how did the church before the Reformation understand grace? And how do, for example, Roman Catholics today talk about grace? Because they certainly believe in grace. Yes, I think that they do, and uh, we should acknowledge that. But at the same time, we want to ask that very fundamental question, what do they mean by grace? What do we mean by grace? And which of us, uh, in terms of our traditions, more accurately lines up with the scriptures? You know, basically, as I said uh, just moments ago, that God's grace is his favor. And you see this term used in the uh, Old and New Testaments. It's either the Hebrew term kanan or the Greek term charis, which is where we get the term charity, for example. And you see this where Joseph in Genesis. Genesis 39, found favor or grace in Potiphar's sight, where the book of Ruth describes Boaz's care for her as his grace. David, for example, gave grace to Jonathan or his favor. Or we could also say very broadly speaking that God's conduct towards Noah in Genesis 6 was a manifestation of his favor, of his grace. And so I think that scripturally speaking, 
and this is where the Reformation lines up with the scriptures, is that we have to understand God's grace as his favor. But conversely, or in a very different way, I think historically, the Roman Catholic Church has not talked about it so much in terms of God's favor, but rather in terms of a gift or a substance that God gives to sinners chiefly or at least initially in baptism and then subsequently throughout the various different sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And they talk about it in substantival forms because I think in the early church, and this isn't necessarily as widespread as we might think, but it's nevertheless there, they talked about God's grace in substantive terms. And you see this, for example, with Augustine. If sin is a substance within us, then it requires a substance or a counter substance to counteract or to extinguish sin within us. So substance requires substance. And then later Roman Catholic theologians such as uh, Thomas Aquinas, he introduced the category of created and uncreated grace because I think built in fundamentally to Roman Catholic theology is the idea that even in an unfallen state, human beings are incapable of fellowshipping with God. And so because we're incapable of directly fellowshipping with him, God has to create grace that bridges this unbridgeable gap, or at least humanly speaking, unbridgeable gap. And so we receive this created grace through the sacraments, whereas the reformers took a very different opinion. It's not a substance, but rather it's God's favor. Why is this important? Is this just technical stuff that guys like you argue about with other people because you got you have nothing else to do? <laughs> what was at stake in the Reformation when they sought to redefine grace from stuff with which we're injected and mm-hmm. infused mm-hmm. to God's favor? I think what's at stake here is very bluntly Christ in that do we find salvation exclusively in Christ and do we find it by faith alone? So there's two of our other solas, solus Christus, Christ alone, or sola fide, by faith alone. Or is it that Christ gives this substance to the priests and then it's the priests that administer salvation and, you know, they invoke the phrase by the work performed or ex opere operato, that whenever somebody receives the holy water of baptism, they automatically receive this grace. Or whenever the priest says, hoc est corpus meum, and the substance of the bread and the wine changes into the substance of the body of Christ, and then they dispense it. Does salvation come from the hands of the priests, or does it ultimately and chiefly come from Christ? Is Christ ultimately the one who dispenses redemption through the ministerial labors of the ministers of the gospel. And so the Reformation wanted to turn grace away from some sort of dispensation of a substance and center it upon the word of God in Christ that comes to us through the gospel. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I'm just looking at John 1.14 here, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. And when it says full of grace, again, going back to the Middle Ages, they Mm -hmm. wanted to see this as something with which He was full, something that was sort of within Him that He dispenses. Mm -hmm. But if you keep going, John 1.16, And from His fullness... We have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How does 116 help us see the difference between substance and favor? 
Yeah, I think that the way that John unpacks redemptive history is that he characterizes the progressive revelation of the gospel as various manifestations of God's grace, of his favor. And then in that respect, it finds its pinnacle, its climax in Christ. Not that it's in some sort of substance such as in the waters of baptism or in the substance of the Lord's Supper. We, of course, don't want to discount the importance of the sacraments, but we want to rightly characterize in what manner they convey grace. Yeah, because we call them means of grace, Absolutely. right? And so we talk about the due use of ordinary means. And even Louis Burkhoff is willing to talk about them as channels mm-hmm. of grace. Mm-hmm. But by that, he does not mean that they contain medicinal substance right. that's dispensed to us. Really, isn't it the case that what we're talking about here is the nature of salvation Mm -hmm. and more particularly the nature of justification and and sanctification too? Right. That our right standing with God is on the basis of his favor toward us, Mm -hmm. not on the basis of an infusion of medicine Mm -hmm. with which we cooperate. I think you're absolutely right there. I think that, you know, where we can really pick up on this is that when you read, for example, either the Reformed Confessions and Catechisms or, for example, those works that explicate those documents, the 16th and 17th century Reformed tradition, I think, really makes a big shift away from substantival type language to describe grace. And instead, they begin to focus upon word-centered conceptions of grace, which I think ultimately represents a return to the biblical conception of it. So, for example, in Zacharias or Sinus, in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, he says, talking about the sacraments, the thing signified is Christ with all his benefits, or it is the communion and participation of Christ in all his benefits. He's not talking about some sort of substance, but he's saying that Christ is actually the substance of the sacraments. But he also characterizes the sacraments as a sacramental form of speech. And so that it moves away from substantival categories to word-centered categories, so that we don't want to say that it's merely the conveying of data or information, but rather we want to look at the sacraments, say, in this particular issue, in the same manner that we would look at God's speech when he spoke the world into existence. God spoke and something happened, so that when God speaks in word and sacrament, something happens. In this case, he conveys his favor to his children and conforms them more to the image of Christ. So if you go through your English Bible and if you look at grace, just in the New Testament alone, which in the ESV, the English word grace occurs 124 times in the New Testament. So every time you see it, ask yourself, which fits better in the context, favor or medicine? Mm -hmm. If you just do that as you're reading, you'll see why the Protestants came to that conclusion. So, okay, we thought about the medieval background of the Reformation and some of the concerns that motivated the Protestants to talk about grace. And we still haven't gotten to the sola, which is very important. But before we do that, Mm -hmm. think about now grace in the context of American evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. We talk about those of us who have discovered or learned or heard about the, quote, doctrines of grace, Mm -hmm. close quote. Mm-hmm. And that is a subset, I suppose, in some mm-hmm. ways, of American evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Why is that so? Because from a historic point of view, the whole church always said that they believed in grace. And yet today, if you stand up in a gathering of a thousand, uh, you know, sort of randomly selected evangelicals and you announced, you know, on a megaphone, I believe in grace, mm-hmm. you'd get some interesting reactions. Mm-hmm. Why is that so? 
I think that maybe one way to illustrate this whole issue and answer the question comes from the early 90s with the whole debacle about evangelicals and Catholics together, where prominent Roman Catholic and evangelical leaders signed a document and they said, we agree that salvation is by grace through faith. And, you know, that's where the huge issue is. What happened to the solas there? What happened to the alones? And what that boils down to is that according to Rome... And according, I guess we could say also for broader evangelicalism, they would, of course, affirm that salvation is by grace. I always tell my students, you have to have a lot of guts in order to say you don't need God's grace for salvation. I say, that's why we have one Pelagius. You know, he got up there and boldly said, you don't need God's grace for salvation. But the vast majority of the church will, of course, say, or people who claim to be a part of the church will say, of course, you need God's grace. But where we differ and where the sola becomes so important is that where Rome and broader evangelicalism say, yes, of course, God's grace is necessary, they will also add a second ingredient. They will say God's grace and my participation or my contribution in terms of my obedience, my good works, my sincerity, my faith working through love, whatever the various combinations may be. Whereas for the Reformed tradition, we've always insisted upon that sola, sola gratia, to say that no, in line with Paul, as he says there in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that salvation is by grace. And we could say, I think rightly, grace alone, by faith alone. In other words, our salvation rests entirely with Christ's work and not upon our own. That's not to say that we are therefore indifferent about our good works, that we don't care, of course we do, but that our good works are not the foundation for our salvation. And so that's where that whole modifier of the sola or the alone comes into play that really I believe, and I think I know you do too, sets apart the Reformed tradition from the vast majority of evangelicalism so that when we do hear that subset of the doctrines of grace, okay, we're encouraged because, hey, that's definitely true, that's on the right path. But I think the vast majority of the church as well as Rome would disagree with the way that we characterize those doctrines of grace or the way we talk about sola gratia. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu 888 480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California For Christ, His Gospel and His Church
So not everybody who talks about grace also says alone. Correct. And this really showed up in evangelicals and Catholics together, Mm -hmm. particularly the first two documents. Right. Where the first one came out and there was a hue and cry Mm -hmm. and they said, well, we'll fix it. And the second one came out and at least by my lights, I don't know how you see it. It wasn't really much of an, an improvement. No. Because you really can't reconcile the notion that we are saved by God's favor alone mm-hmm. with the notion that we are saved by God's favor or God's medicine and our cooperation with that medicine. Right. I don't know how else to put it other than to say that if Rome is right, then Paul is wrong. I mean, that's the bluntest way that you can put it. And the entire book of Galatians would have to be chopped out of the canon, among many other things that we would have to cut out. <laughs> but at least chiefly, that example would serve, I think, sufficient uh, evidence in that Romans regard. chapter 3, Romans right. chapter 4, yeah. Romans chapter 5, yes. and 7, yeah. Huge or 8, chunks. anyway. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, large chunks of scripture would have to be revised. And, of course, to make this clear, Luther translated famously Romans Mm 3.28 by adding alone. And then recently I learned that he was not the first to do this. There were Irish monks Hmm. who were adding sola Hmm. to their copies of scripture centuries before Luther. Interesting. This is not an absolutely unique insight, but it is a really fundamental and important insight Mm -hmm. for us to understand and to say when we say to one another, by grace, we need to add that alone to make it clear that our cooperation isn't really part of the basis on which or even the means by which we are being saved, whether that's justified or sanctified. And here I'm thinking of uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 35, Mm -hmm. which says sanctification is the work Mm -hmm. of God's grace. And if you substitute favor for that, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. I'd like to point out too, along those lines that uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 14, paragraph one, talks about faith alone, which is sufficient for justification and sanctification, which I think helps us to understand that salvation rests upon Christ's work and entirely upon his work. That's not to the exclusion of our effort in sanctification or our wrestling and our struggling with sin, but it certainly means that Christ's foundation cannot be subverted overturned, replaced, or augmented with anything at all from our side of the equation. When the Israelites were at the Red Sea, and when the Egyptians and Pharaoh and his armies are you know, coming down upon them, and their backs are against the sea, Yahweh did not save them because they were cooperating with grace. Mm-hmm. He saved them despite their rebelliousness, their disobedience. They were talking back to Moses and saying, what have you done? You've brought us out here to be killed. <laughs> right. And the whole point of the Exodus, one of, maybe the greatest point is, God sovereignly saved, graciously, freely, unconditionally saved his people out of his favor right. for them. Absolutely. And for nothing in them or done by them. Right. Absolutely. And I think there's an important corollary to all of this, which I suspect is implied in the whole phrase sola gratia, is that in an Arminian or in a Roman Catholic construction, if you have to contribute and put in your two pence worth, so to speak, in order to be saved, then that means that God's grace alone is not the sufficient ground for your salvation, which also means, therefore, that there's a mutable aspect to your salvation, which means that, you know, God's grace is a part of it, But if you don't do your part, then you can lose your salvation. And Arminius himself said that if David had died in the moments after his sin with Bathsheba, he would have gone to hell. Which is essentially a Roman Catholic 
exactly a medieval view of salvation. Right, absolutely. Then that means that, yeah, it's not by God's grace alone that you're saved, but rather it's also through the contribution of your works. And if you don't have enough, well, then it's off to purgatory. Or if somehow you endanger your justified state through mortal sin, well, then you lose your salvation and therefore lose your claim to God's grace. Whereas the Reformation has always said, no, it's God's grace alone. And again, with Paul, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace, you've been saved through faith and this not of yourself lest anyone should boast. So if grace is not unconditional, if it's conditioned by anything in us, then you almost have to come to a place where you say, well, then it's possible to lose grace. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer irresistible. Right. And if grace is not irresistible, then our certainty and our assurance is in grave jeopardy, don't you think? Absolutely. The way one of my congregants once described it is, is that salvation turns into a treadmill rather than a resting place. And if you can't keep up with the treadmill, well, you know what'll happen is that you'll get tossed off the treadmill. And one of the ways scripturally that I really love to think about this whole concept is the way that the 23rd Psalm ends is that the traditional translation goes, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But the Hebrew term there is is not one for follow, really, but rather for pursuit. And so it's surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life, which that I think paints a slightly different picture and shows us that it's God's grace that pursues us, that he woos us, that he invincibly conquers us with his love and with his care, so much so that we're irreversibly, indefectibly always in his love and never able to fall out of it. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There are challenges in our time to this notion of salvation and justification, sanctification by grace alone. One of them would be the new perspective on Paul, Mm -hmm. which has gone back and it's part of a process of reevaluating the rabbis in the first century Mm -hmm. and telling a different story. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what are the new perspective on Paul fellows saying about the rabbis and grace and where has that led some of them? Sure. I think that, you know, it's especially in the wake of the Holocaust. And I think there were a lot of people in uh, post-World War II Europe that began to reevaluate how they characterized Judaism, because I think in one respect, there was a lot of guilt that spread across Europe over this horrible event. And rightly so. I mean, you know, we see something like that. It should cause us to re-examine ourselves. But I think that in this respect, they said, well, maybe we've mischaracterized Judaism as a whole. And so the basic picture that emerged from the New Testament guild was that Judaism should not be equated with Pelagianism. Now, this is an important distinction here. Judaism should not be equated with Pelagianism or with works righteousness. And a number of New Testament scholars, Christer Stendhal and others, claimed that, well, Luther characterized his contemporaries as Pelagians, as those who were simply interested in a raw works for salvation type of agreement. The problem with this, and perhaps it's because it was based upon some really shoddy historical work. I mean, Christer Stendhal's essay was for, I think, the American Psychological Society, not really a historical piece based upon objective primary source research, but rather kind of an impression of who Luther was. I like the way that Charles Hodge puts it. He says, 
we've never been concerned so much with the ghost of Pelagius, but rather it's the ghost of semi-Pelagius that we've always been concerned about. Luther, the reformers, they never said that Judaism, or for that matter, that Rome were Pelagian. Sure, in some of their more flared rhetoric, they may have accused them of being Pelagians, but at that very technical level, they would have agreed that it was semi-Pelagian, this combination between works and grace. And so in that sense, the New Testament guild dismisses the supposed, you know, caricature of first century Judaism in Paul's day and says, we can't say that the Jews in Paul's day were, of course, proponents of grace. And so if they were proponents of grace, then we have to kind of completely reconsider the Reformation and all of its attacks against first century Judaism. We have to completely reconsider our reading of Paul. Right. So if the rabbis are actually proponents of grace, then when Paul says not by works of the law, mm-hmm. he's not really referring to, you know, works, salvation. Right. He's talking about the ceremonial laws, right. which the New Perspective guys represent as a sort of breakthrough interpretation. Yeah. But of course, you and I know it's not a breakthrough at all. That was a well-established medieval interpretation of Paul. Absolutely. I think that Luther and Calvin both picked up on that interpretation that the medieval doctors claimed that, yeah, Paul was only interested in the ceremonial law. And that is not at all the case. And in fact, I think to me, one of the most telling statements comes from James Dunn, one of the chief proponents of the new perspective on Paul, and that he says, we know that Paul did not write the book of Ephesians because Ephesians deals with works righteousness and Paul never refutes works righteousness. And I think, well, that's really interesting. It's I mean, what we call in the business an a priori. You, right. you, you know certain things in advance before you ever get to the evidence. Right. And, and then you drive a a bulldozer over the rest of it. Right, exactly. For the sake of discussion, I say, let's just set off to the side, just for the sake of discussion, the authorship of Ephesians, which, you know, you and I would both say, it's of course, it's Paul. And we'd say, check out our New Testament scholar colleague's book, Steve Baugh and his commentary, available in the bookstore on that question. But if Ephesians does deal with works righteousness and the problem of semi-Pelagianism, to use the anachronistic term, then that means, and Dunn is acknowledging that, then that means that it was a problem in first century Judaism and maybe the Reformation didn't misread Paul after all. And you could see also our colleague Mike Horton's volume three in his mm-hmm. series with Westminster John Knox Press, where he deals with the new perspective at length on this very question That's right. of their understanding of the Reformation, their understanding of Paul. And so the bottom line for all of this is that we've been faced with this doctrine of grace and cooperation with grace mm-hmm. for a very long time, going all the way back to the rabbis, That's so right. that when it reappears in the medieval church, it's not new. And so when the Reformation rejects this doctrine of salvation by grace and cooperation with grace. It's only redoing what the New Testament had already done. As you say, what Paul did in Ephesians, what Paul does in Galatians, arguably in Colossians, and potentially the writer to the Hebrews and elsewhere. So that when Paul says, you know, without the works of the law, that is an affirmation of what we understand to be sola gratia. That's right. Yeah. I think what I find fascinating to me is that if we could only get New Testament scholars to speak to medieval historians, <laughs> we might see some progress on this. Because when you look at how they supposedly describe first century Judaism, it looks suspiciously a lot like medieval Roman Catholic theology. 
So this is what is important about what goes on here at Westminster Seminary, California, because though we all have different academic disciplines, we do actually talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And so we are in the hallway, we're in each other's offices, and we are sort of Mm cross-pollinating one another. And so we don't have this isolation that does often exist in the academy outside of Westminster Seminary, California. So have you always, John, seen Sola Gratia the way you see it now? I haven't. Uh, Much to my shame, but nevertheless, I'm grateful that the Lord changed my mind about it. And that for me, it came down to a question of reading scripture and that I believed at a time, you know, uh, in my college years, that uh, salvation was ultimately God's ratification of my decision. And I had a college minister at my church. He gently, but nevertheless, directly challenged me. And he said, John, I want you to read Romans 9 every day for the next 30 days. And then come to me and let's talk to see if you still think that salvation is a combination of God's grace and your decision to believe. And after about, oh, I suspect maybe the third day, I cried uncle. And I said, okay, God, (laughs) you save and not me. And so blessedly, ever since that being confronted with scripture and then other passages of scripture like Ephesians 2 or John 1.14 and following, or, you know, when you reflect, as you said, upon just about every opening to all of Paul's letters. What does that mean? And why is that significant? And why does he open with those words? And then how all of this connects throughout the system of doctrine and throughout our soteriology. It's been a balm for my soul to encourage me so that I know that salvation ultimately rests in God's merciful favor that he's shown us in Christ applied by his spirit. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.